Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. This is a replay of my conversation with Gloria Mark from a conversation that we had together in 2017. And it's in honour of her having just published her book called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness and productivity, which is being touted as the most must-read book for January and receiving a lot of media and podcast attention that you may have already come across. So Gloria Mark is a Chancellor's Professor in the Department of Informatics at the Donald Bren School of Information and Computer Sciences at University of California, Irvine. In this conversation from 2017, you'll hear Gloria talk about her experiences as Chair of a major conference, how she moved from a fine arts background painting murals on buildings to doing a PhD in cognitive science and to studying the relationship between media use, attention and stress. I'm replaying this conversation because I think it will be interesting to see how this work was part of the path to her current book and it might inspire people to similarly think about how what they are doing now can maybe be amplified later on to have more impact than just academic outputs. Gloria, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with me today, and especially in the middle of this big conference that you're a chair of. That's been a huge undertaking. Absolutely. Are you recovering? It will take me some time to <laughs> decompress from yeah. this. So yeah. how long has it been in the, in the build-up, in oh, the work for this? It's been about a year and a half yeah. that we've been doing this. And how many attendees? We have about 2,900. So as an academic community, we, have a, we owe a big debt of thanks to people like you who put in all of this volunteer effort, because it is volunteer effort. It, it's, it's been a lot of effort, but... It has been very rewarding. Yeah. It's, it's been a tremendous amount of work. But I know I'm going to look back on this and I, I'm going to feel very, um, fulfilled okay. by doing this. In what sort of ways? What aspects? Well, I feel like, um, we, we've brought some good things to the community and I, I feel especially proud of the keynotes mm-hmm. that we had, you know, we chose keynotes that would inspire people that I felt were creative. And, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, from people's responses, mm. we've achieved that uh, so far. We have one more mm-hmm. keynote, but he, mm-hmm. he should be terrific. Um, I feel very um, happy that we did Kai stories mm-hmm. to get the idea out there to mm. show it's possible that we can do these kinds of, uh, this kind of storytelling yeah. in the community. Yeah. And I was um, very touched by the stories and very, um, probably what touched me most of all was that we had um, these wonderful storytellers that were willing to tell their stories that mm. that really mm. um, made me feel very good and and very proud of the community. Yeah, and I think that's uh, something that resonates with the feedback I get from the the chats I have with people on this podcast. That people connect with stories, and we know that, don't we? Because we're inherently storytellers, and it, it does help create those human connections. Yeah, I mean, I wanted. Um, I guess that the mark that I wanted to leave was that uh, this should be more than a scientific conference, mm. but let's let's humanize it. Let's, yes. Let's yep. um, uh, let, let's understand who are the people behind yeah. uh, the research here. Yeah. 
And I think that's really important. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, it was, it was a, um, for me, it made me very happy. Yeah. So I hadn't intended to start talking about this, but you know, now that we're here. So, um, what led you to take on this service role? You know, because we often hear different people talk about service and whether you should, how much you should say yes to or no to. Well, um, I guess the the idea was brought up by a colleague. It was someone who had um, been a chair who thought I would be a good candidate to be chair. And actually, she had said that my name had surfaced mm-hmm. in a meeting that of a potential good chair, and she broached the idea to me. And I thought I would think about it, and I wanted to know more about what's involved. Um, and as I heard more about it, I realized that um, it, it could be a, it could be a good fit. I, I have been I've done other roles like papers chair, mm-hmm. which are quite labor intensive for short periods of time and uh, de- very detail oriented. Yeah, yeah. And I I'm not good at detail-oriented work. And the thing I really like is big-picture thinking. And so the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, this would enable a Mm, kind of big-picture thinking. Um, And there, there is a professional event planning committee and it professional registration company. And so these kinds of detail-oriented tasks are taken care of professionally, so I wouldn't have to do mm. those. You know, mm. I would hate, mm. hate to do that kind of work. So, so I, um, I felt that uh, it, it would be an interesting challenge. And I will say that I feel like I've grown into the role. So when I started out, I was very different than I am now. And I started out um, when people would make demands, because they make demands. Mm -hmm. If if you're conference chair, I would acquiesce very easily. And then after doing this for a year and a half, or maybe been nearly two years, I can say no. It's not going to happen. I feel absolutely no remorse by mm-hmm, saying that. Mm-hmm. I can say that and move on. Um, and I, I just feel, um, in terms of managing people, that I've, I've grown so much. And I, I really feel that with, after this experience, I, I could be a CEO of a small company. Well, the scale of the enterprise, yes, it, it's yeah. huge. And yeah. And uh, you you learn a lot about people by working mm. with them. Mm-hmm. You you learn about individuals. You learn things you didn't imagine, but you also learn in general things about human nature, even things that I hadn't realized before. Mm. So it it's been a great learning experience from from that side. It's it's been a lot of work. But yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting other other side of the the service and the work, which is what we'd normally think of. But you've pointed to two things. One is thinking about service in a way that fits with and matches with what you're good at, what your strengths are, and that you get something back. You know, that, yeah. that it can be this really positive experience. I, I definitely got something back, and I'll tell you one of the greatest moments for me mm-hmm. was. Monday is was the first day of the conference, and at the afternoon break was when the interactivity session and the art exhibit, all of these things were going to be open to the public. Now, up until then, I had only seen these exhibits on paper mm. with names and a short yeah. description, and that's all I knew about them. And I walked into that exhibit hall, and I saw everything set up, and it just blew my mind. And I was just walking around in awe. And I thought, oh, my God, this we've done this. You've we've helped. You've put yeah. this together, yeah. and it's, 
real. And, you know, to see that, I, I can't even convey the feeling that I had that this came together. That's brilliant. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was really, uh, a very, um, it affected me in a, yeah. a very profound way to see that. Yeah. Hopefully that inspires many of us to get out and contribute because our academic community runs on volunteer efforts like yours. Yes. And you've shown it in a really good light. Well, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I, I think that, uh, you know, everybody has a particular talent that they can contribute. Mm. And I, I've seen that really clearly in this role. And um, even people who are coming up to me now at the conference, and they might say, oh, I'd like to volunteer. There was a young lady from industry, and she said, you know, I would love to do something for the conference. And after about 20 seconds, I knew exactly what she could do. And you you realize quickly the match between Mm. what people's interests and skills Mm. are and what they Mm. can contribute. Yeah, because I think that would be important. So just going back, um, at the beginning, just before we started recording, you admitted to having an arts degree as your first degree and then psychology and biostats. How did you come from that path to here at a human-computer interaction conference? It, it was not a straight path, believe me. So I, um, I, I did get an undergraduate degree in art. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. Never thought I would do anything else. I thought, this is it. I've reached it. This is mm-hmm. my zenith. I'm going to be an artist. I loved it. I did painting and drawing. I even did, um, in the summers when I was in art school, I painted murals for the city of Cleveland. I had this, there was a, there was a, this, um, grant from the National Endowment yeah. for the Arts and, um, I was part of this program and painting huge building murals. In Are the, they still there? Uh, uh, I believe some of them might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I even, after I graduated, I went to London. I got a grant from the British Arts Council and painted murals in London. But what I discovered was that, um, I mean, painting murals is a lot of physical work. It's mm-hmm. physically hard work. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of looked ahead and I thought, well, gee, you know, I'm really young. I can do this now. Am I going to be able to do this in 10 years or 20 years? And the alternative of painting in a studio was just not a good fit for my personality. Mm-hmm. I, I'm too social and I just couldn't foresee myself being alone in a studio and painting. And there was also the idea of painting for who? Painting for myself. I'm going to spend my whole day painting for myself. I, I was very, um, idealistic and I was, you know, wanted to save the world. <laughs> I thought the, the murals at least are painting for mm-hmm. the public, for yeah. people. And yeah. there was all, there was a, always an, um, there was symbolism in the murals, always about something to do with harmony and brotherhood and sisterhood and connecting people. So I was, I was very idealistic. Well, if I knew that wasn't going to happen and I knew working in a studio alone was not going to happen, what, what else was there? So, um, it also happened that, you know, when I was, um, when I was in high school, I was, I was very good in math very good at math, and, and I knew I could do math. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. could do art, but I, I yeah. knew I could do math. So at that point, I just thought I would do something practical. I would use my math skill. I would get a degree and get a job and, you know, and live my life, right? Mm-hmm. And so I looked around in various programs. What can you do with, you know, with with a math uh, skill. I didn't want to get another bachelor's degree. And there was a program in biostatistics that took people from any background. 
I thought, well, this is good. And people got really good jobs after. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to do this. And so that was at University of Michigan. I applied. I got in. Um, but then as soon as I got there, I realized how boring it was. <laughs> I was like, here I was painting murals and so involved in all these <laughs> social things. And then here I am doing probably what I didn't want to do by painting in sitting a studio. In a, yeah, sitting yeah. in a studio, but with numbers. And so while I was at uh, University of Michigan, I, I was taking electives as part of the program, and um, and I, the electives were way more interesting than the courses in the program. And I remember taking demography, and that was so interesting. Population genetics was really, really interesting. But then I took a course in decision-making in uh, psychology, mm. and I loved it, loved it. And the same thing that, another thing that happened at the same time was that, well, I needed a job. Yeah. And so I was looking. Practicalities. Yeah, practicalities. Yeah. And I was looking around for a, you know, research position or any kind of position, and I saw this little ad that was, um, said research assistant needed for, um, I think it was called, I think it was called information science, and I had no idea what that was. So I applied, and I make an appointment, and I visited the professor, Manfred Cochin, and I sit down, and he says, can you do um, queuing theory? I said, no. <laughs> can you program in Fortran? No. no. <laughs> he asked me all these other things. And I said, no. And so I just picked up my backpack and started to walk out and said, thank you. He said, wait a minute. What can you do? And I said, well, I can paint. I can draw. And he said, come back and sit down. And I did. And he said, well, before I got my PhD in math at MIT, I took courses at the Art Students League in New York. And then we talked for about two hours wow. about art. And we had the most wonderful discussion about art. You know, I, I could do that, right? I could talk about art. And then after, it was probably about two hours, he said to me, you know, hiring people to do research is a risk. And do you think you could uh, do research on the discovery process of artists? And, you know, I was young and I was kind of uh, brash. <laughs> Not brash, what's right, the word, you know, uh, you just feel like... Just con of course you could. Yeah. And I said, of course, yeah, yeah of course yeah. I can. You know, this I know... Naive, how... This naive, I know, what's the word, this naive sort of confidence or... Uh, you're yeah. you're just young and think you can yeah. do anything, yeah. and and I I knew how discovery the discovery process works for artists. I said, of course I can. He said, well then I'm going to take a risk on you and I'm going to hire you. And so you know here I am taking this course in decision making, mm. which I loved, and then I started reading everything I could on cognitive psychology. Because I, I knew intuitively how the discovery process worked. But I didn't know how to put that in words. Mm. And I needed a language. So I started, I read all this cognitive psychology. And it was, I loved it. And the Manfred coach and used to come in my office and I had like stacks of books. And he, he was like so impressed. But to me, it was just like, it was great. I just really enjoyed yeah. reading through them. And I ended up writing a paper describing the discovery process in, in terms that I thought were, um, you would say, you, I operationalized it. Mm -hmm. That's what you would say. Mm -hmm. And it, it, the paper got accepted to the Harvard Computer Graphics Conference. And I went there and presented it. And uh, there was a person in the audience, I remember he was an architect, and he thought I was talking about AI, and he was furious. And he thought I was trying to design machines that could be creative and 
you know, he was very old school, and he was yelling at me. In fact, the... That's a terrible experience for your first conference. It was terrible. And the, the moderator of the session actually, like, broke it off and yeah. kind of stood up for me. But um, I, I was so thrilled to be there. It didn't bother me so much because it was... I mean, I was kind of shaken, but mm. here I am at this conference. Mm. So... So that's what got me into cognitive psychology. And I applied to different programs and ended up going to Columbia and did my PhD in psychology in decision-making. Wow. Isn't it interesting the way lives work out through serendipitous encounters, the fact that he called you back for a two-hour talk that ended up being a two-hour talk? and So my... the. If I had to say that there's one philosophy that guides my life, mm. it's um, what Einstein says, chance favors the prepared mind. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. And because I think that there are opportunities all around us, and very often we're blind to them. But if you are really aware and open... You have to, it's important to be open and flexible. So can you say more about how you, how someone might be practically be open and aware? Because we can say be aware and open of the chances. But what does it mean to be yeah. open, to be open-minded? Um, it means that you have to be willing to give up a particular path mm. that you might think you're on. And you have to be willing to change, right. to to veer away from it or to change completely. And, you know, it's, it's of course, not good to completely keep switching yeah. back and forth. Yeah. You, you have to do it intelligently. But you, and you, of course, you always have to weigh the, mm. the risks mm. and the benefits mm. for whatever choice you make. It sounded like a lot of that there was also some deeper connection that resonated with you that made you think, yes, this was worth taking the risk or worth taking that different direction. Yes, if it connects to something that's really a part of you, then that is worth the risk. That is absolutely worth the risk. Because you can't do something that you feel is... Is, is not who you are or it's against your, um, belief system. And, you know, people mm. will eventually change their belief systems yeah. to adapt to their behavior, yeah. right? Because of cognitive dissonance. But that's not a good thing to do, mm. right? You yeah. have to, you have to be able to sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of your more, well, it's not, I was going to say more recent research, but it goes back quite a number of years. You've spent a lot of time, um, having moved on from there, studying issues around multitasking and, uh, stress and, and you know, workplace factors like that. Can you tell us something about what some of the key findings are, or, you know, some of the sort of themes that are, keep reappearing across that work? Yeah. So, you know, just like <laughs> almost everything that I've done, it, it, it starts from a very personal experience. Mm-hmm. And I actually have to go back to the year 2000 when I moved from Europe. I was living in Germany, moving mm-hmm. back to the U.S. and started being an assistant professor. And when I was in Germany, I was working at a research institute and all I did was research. I didn't have to write grants. I didn't teach. I didn't mentor students. I didn't have to sit on committees. I was just doing research. Did you appreciate at the time how precious that was? I, I didn't because I didn't have anything to compare it to. I had not been in academia. <laughs> That's amazing to have that freedom. Yes. And then and focus. I... And then I come to the U.S. in 2000, and all of a sudden I am teaching, and I'm mentoring students, I'm writing grants, I'm sitting on lots of committees, doing service work for, you know, I did service work before as well, but all of a sudden I just realized 
I'm doing all these different things. Mm-hmm. And I had two small children at the time. So I realized I was really multitasking. And I was wondering to what extent am I the only one doing it or are others having the same experience? And so that's what started me thinking about mm. this this topic. Yeah. And I fortunately had a student who was very interested in uh, the attention economy and and uh, mm. these these things. So what what um, so I think all of us would uh, see ourselves in the whole multitasking challenge with multiple roles and demands on our time. What what are the patterns that you would see in studying us? So people, I, I think so much of multitasking is is tied up with people's digital media use. Mm-hmm. People have always multitasked. That's not new. Right. Right? We've you know, um parents have always multitasked with kids. Um managers have multitasked with answering the phone and meeting mm. people face to face. So so multitasking is in itself is not a new experience. In fact, you know, people have argued that we've survived from an evolutionary perspective because we have had the ability yeah, to multitask yeah. and watch out for, you know, bears predators, or predators. Yeah, yeah. So um but I think that the, the pattern of multitasking has sped up and intensified through the use of digital media mm-hmm. because, you know, the computer or our phones, it's, it's a window onto nearly unlimited information that we can access seamlessly, mm. fast, mm. Um, with... S- such low effort. So you have a whim that comes to mind. Mm. You can, you know, click a button and you can look it up. And so this idea of switching to different topics maps on really well to how, you know, most of us think, which is thoughts, you know, flitter through our minds. And so, um, this this reinforces our switching our attention to to very different mm. things. But what's the stress relationship when you talk about that in your work? Yeah. So I mean, and we've found this empirically that the more people switch attention between different screens, mm. the higher is their stress. And and we measure stress through objective means using sensors, so either using heart rate mm-hmm. monitors, which gives a measure of what's called heart rate variability, which which is a, a clinical measure of stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we find is that, you know, the faster the switching, the, the higher the stress, because the the theory of attentional resources, mm-hmm. this is a, a old psychological theory is that people have a limited capacity of attentional resources and you you use resources when you do different kinds of activities so you use resources if you're on Facebook or if you're working on a word document or excel spreadsheet or doing email you're always using up mental resources and um you need to replenish resources. Uh, you can replenish resources by taking a break. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research that shows that um, go- walking outside in nature mm-hmm. can replenish people and mm-hmm. refresh them and make people even more creative. Um, but we get in, we have this habitual pattern of behavior where we keep switching. And so we're not taking these breaks like we yeah, should. Right. And and there's a an extra stress involved in reorienting to, to to a new context. 
So if you're going from email to a Word document, you have to kind of reorient your mind. Every email we get involves some new topic. You know, some is easier to deal with than others. In, In my role as conference chair, I got quite a lot of emails, especially recently. And every email involved a different answer. Sometimes I had to look up information. Mm. I had to consult other people for the information. I had to think about it. I had to search on my computer for the answer. And so it was just like one constant task after another. And that created stress. Email is, is a symbol of work, right? It's a symbol of work. It's not, you know, Facebook or Watching a movie is a very mm. different kind of mm. use of attentional resources. Mm. That's more just of a, a passive con- or a consumption in some way, mm-hmm. to varying degrees of. And it, but it's it's not only that, but email is a reminder that there's work there. Mm. So you know, if you're watching a, a funny YouTube video, you know it could be a bit of a release. Mm. You know, there's not yeah. it's not that stressful once you started the watching the video. But with the email, it's this symbol that this is going to involve work when you click on this email. Unless, you know, every so often we get emails from long lost friends mm, or you might, yes. might get a nice yeah. email. But within a work context, it's more likely to be the former. Yes. You talked about it intensifying. Can you say more about that? That that digital media intensifies our multitasking. Yeah, what I what I think working with digital media does, it it speeds up our shifting of attention. Mm-hmm. Right? If you you know, I, I'm from a generation where I straddle pre internet and post internet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And pre internet I read books. And, you know, I, the, I, there was nothing I loved more than to spit, you know, curl up in a chair, read a book, and, you know, you could just read long passages of the mm-hmm. book. Or sometimes you, you know, you would play with your friends, or you might have a phone conversation. Um, but it, you know, what I find myself doing, and it's terrible, but I sit there at breakfast and I open my computer. And I do my email because I have to get that email out of the way mm. by a certain time, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, it will pile up. Uh, I'm I'm online a lot, an awful lot, and my average duration of attention is very short. And w- we have measured empirically people's average duration of attention on any computer screen. Mm. And it's um, it's a little over forty seconds. That's amazing. And that's that it's so short. That's a pattern across a lot of people. And if you're talking about a cost at every forty second shift, <laughs> that's that's on average. Actually, the the median is very similar. Mm-hmm. The the median attention duration, mm-hmm. and so it it has a cost. Yeah. You know, by the end of the day, when yeah. you're switching so frequently. Because it's it's not just it's not just the screen that's switching, but switching screens is a proxy for mm. switching attention. Mm. So you know all this from your research, and yet you've just talked about opening up your email at breakfast. So in knowing all this from the research, how has it played out? Has it made any difference in what you decide to do or how do you, how you do it? Or do you just have more insight into what you're doing to yourself? I, I would say I, I just have more insight into what I'm doing for myself. Um, it's, I, I think a lot about why people are so, um, online all the time and why I am online so much. I think there's a number of things. Um, it's habit. A lot of it is habit. Mm. And just like any habit, it's very hard to, to break habits. Mm. Um, 
So if you were thinking about some of your, your habits, what would be the first habit you'd like to break if you could, in t- knowing the research side of what it's doing? Let me think about that. Um, I think I would I probably to um, be be more aware of my physical environment. So le- less online mm-hmm. and more aware of my physical surroundings, which could be going outside more, mm-hmm. interacting with people more. Put you know shifting my attention from the screen to yeah. the physical yeah. environment. And do you think that in the current demands of your role as you know as a professor in a university with all the responsibilities that you have, that it could ever be possible to do that realistically? Of course it could be. Of course it could be, because people uh, it, people have done that be, mm. before the internet internet mm. became in widespread popularity. Uh, it's, I, th- I think <clears throat> another reason why it's hard to do that, to break away, is that there, there are rewards in doing it. You know, people don't do things unless they get rewards. And so there are rewards for being online. Um, there's all kinds of gratifications that people get. Um, with email, I, I believe that I call it the Las Vegas phenomenon. It's when you play a slot machine. Oh, yes. Every so often you will get a, a hit and you win a lot of money. <laughs> and with email, every so often you will get that invitation for a keynote or message from that long lost friend or there's some good thing mm. that will come but we in psychology there's different kinds of conditioned behavior and one t- type is called um randomly reinforced behavior where it's not scheduled reinforcement where you get a reward every yeah. day but every it's a, it's on a random interval basis now that behavior is the hardest to extinguish mm-hmm. Because if you, every day you got a, a nice email and that nice email stopped coming, mm. you could mm. pretty much give up uh, email pretty quickly. Yeah. But when it's random, it's hard because, yeah. but there, there's also, um, I mean, another reason why it's just hard for people to pull away is because we're, we're all caught up in this web of interconnections and Indeed. I could pull out but I would penalize myself mm. because maybe there's a really important email that's that I need to attend to important information and I'm not getting it mm. um, the, my role as conference chair is a really good example I had to be online all the time because there were just constant emails coming in, and a lot of these things were really critical. And I could, you know, pull myself out of email, yeah. but then other people would. Yeah. I, I I would be ultimately I would ultimately penalize myself, mm. but other people would also mm. hurt as well. Yeah. And if I were in a workplace and decided to pull out and. Maybe I'm only going to do email once a day. Um, I might end up penalizing myself mm. because I'm not responding to information mm. that I should be responding to. So there's got to be, we have to solve the problem on a macro yeah. level. Yeah. How can we do that? Well, it's just getting worse, isn't it? It is getting worse. That I mean, the the number of emails that people get is is just increasing. Our our networks mm. are increasing, and um, I think that the range of what is being asked on email is increasing mm. compared to maybe fifteen years ago. Um, I think we need to think about organizational policies. So you know, in a workplace, 
you could think about an organizational policy that could, um, for example, uh, you can restrict email delivery mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. twice a day, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then you wouldn't expect that your colleague is going to answer because you mm-hmm. know that the email batching is going to come yep. at three so o'clock. I've got a, that just, I don't know, I've got a little reaction going on in my tummy here now that you're saying that because it seems like a good idea. But then I think, what if there was something important? That's right. Isn't well, that interesting? If there was something important, people could call you or walk over to you yes. or there there are other ways to yes, of reach people and maybe that's part of that culture change is you know, this is the batch email and th- th- also there's no guarantee that someone's going to read it at exactly the point it's batched but right um i mean we we did an experiment uh about five years ago where we cut off email in a workplace for a period of five days did you and we measured stress yeah. empirically with sensors, and stress went down significantly. People's attention duration on the screen became significantly longer. Um, and what did people do? Well, the f- first, there were individual differences. And for some people, they were um, really upset initially, like if you're mm. addicted and mm. you're go through withdrawal, but others immediately were mm. felt relieved. By by the end of the five day period, um, most people said, you know, life went on. Life went on, yeah. And and it was just fine. Yeah. And they went back and looked at their emails and they realized how fast information ages. Mm. And you know, if you don't answer something in the first day or the second day, mm. then problem is solved. So that could almost be a strategy as well of not answering immediately and just seeing within reason. So that that workplace where you did switch off email Mm. for a week and then put it back on, did they, were their patterns of use different afterwards? Unfortunately, we we didn't test that. Okay. That that would be just interesting to know whether you got some insight and learned that it could yeah. be different or whether you just fell back in when it was back on. Yeah, I, I suspect everybody went back to their yeah. old patterns. Yeah. But it does say something about, as you said, that it has to be this bigger systemic thing because that wouldn't have worked had you just switched off the email of one person. It needed to be the whole workplace. Right, mm. right. Yeah. I mean, I know for myself, if I'm on vacation and I don't check email that often, mm. uh as soon as I get back from vacation, I go right back to my habits. Yeah. 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 We know what's good for us, but we don't do it. Information is too seductive. Yeah. Yeah. I want to connect back to something earlier that you were talking about when you're enthusiastic about your art. How do you, given all this, the busyness of work and, you know, being online and the demands... What do you do to look after yourself? And, and in particular, how do, you, how do you honor that art piece of you that I imagine is still there? Yeah. When I, when I first gave up art, it, it was very hard because I, I was v- very much a visual thinker mm. and I associated creativity with this kind of visual thinking. But I discovered that creativity, you can be creative in different uh, mediums. And so I like to think that what I do now is a way to exercise my creativity. I actually believe that my art training was very good for science because I learned how to do what's called lateral thinking, mm. where you connect mm-hmm. seemingly very disparate ideas, put them together and come up with something new. Is this part of the discovery process that you wrote about way back? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and science teaches you linear logical thinking, and um, it doesn't really teach you to connect some, you know, or to do really crazy kinds of ideas. Um, but I think being in art, it also gave me the, the courage to be able to, to, you know, to do that. So I, I would encourage, uh, sci- science training to include art. And ma- many scientists 
have art. Uh, they do art on mm. the side. It's mm. it's good. It's a really good thing. Mm. And do you do m murals anymore? No. Side no. of your house. Sometimes I I I I like to go to art exhibits mm. when I can. Mm. I I just like to see what's mm. what's new, what's mm. what's going on, and sometimes I will be very inspired. I'll I'll look at. A piece of artwork, and uh, it'll just make me very excited and inspired, mm. and mm. want to to do something. Um, but I, it requires time, and I don't want to do art as a hobby. It's it w the way I would put it is because it had been a really important part of my mm. life professionally. To relegate it to the status of a hobby. Is it's just too demeaning. So if I were to go back and do it, I would just want to do it um, full, full mm. throttle. Mm. And the other alternative is what you're doing now, where it's woven into everything that you do. Yeah. In, in a in a in a different interpretation. Yeah. I mean, I mm. think you can practice creativity mm. in so many ways. You can practice creativity in conversations. In writing, in um, just thinking of ideas, you know, there's mm. no w reason why mm. you have to be, why you can't be creative. And you read something and yeah. you come up with a new yeah. idea. And how do you look after yourself otherwise? You know, if, if we're talking about all of the stress of the the email mountains and always being online, um, I'm not very good at pulling away from work, unfortunately. I'm, I'm not very good at that. Um, do you want to be good at it or is it fine not pulling away? No, I think I, I am too stressed and it's, it's manifest in, um, my sleep patterns. So I try to allot myself enough time for sleep, but I don't have deep sleep. So I, I see that the stress is being manifest mm -hmm. in my, in my sleep. Or, or lack thereof. So I think I, I should do something about the stress. Um, we, we take vacations and certainly that's helpful. Mm. So you take vacations. Yeah, I mean, taking vacations, although, you know, sometimes vacations can be stressful. That's an interesting yeah, spin. Why? Why? Uh, because there's, you know, you have to get up and do sightseeing. I mean, sometimes sightseeing mm. can be work, mm. a form of work. Yeah. Another form of busyness. Yeah. And, you know, to really pull away would be you just really um, do something totally relaxing. Which, like what? Curl, curling up on a chair with a book uh, <laughs> or, you know, being uh, on a beach. Hiking is a good vacation. Mm. I like to hike a lot. Mm. Um, but it's, I don't do enough of trying to alleviate stress. I mean, one thing I that really helps is that as soon as I know there's a task, um, I, I try to take care of it as soon as possible because delaying on a task just makes stress worse, mm -hmm. right? You've got the stress of actually completing the task yeah. and then added to it is this lingering feeling yeah. that this yeah. has to be done. And so I learned that if you can get things done, paper reviews is mm. a good example, mm. get them done early not the last minute. I thought they were always due the last minute. Oh, I used to do them. That. And I, I don't want to say I'm completely clean. I do turn in mm. late reviews. But in terms of alleviating stress for myself, mm. if I get to them really quickly and get them done, then it really helps with the stress. And, you know, I try to do that, like I, in doing courses, trying to front load all the work of the mm. course in the very beginning. And then you're so thankful it's the night before and you've already got the slides and you, you know, you're. But, it, but all of this also adds work because you, yeah. you pile up that work on that day to get it done more immediately, which then 
leaves the next day to have more work added on. Yeah, it's like it's like a treadmill, yeah. isn't it? You're just yeah. um, you're you you feel like you've solved one completed one task only to have two more get thrown <laughs> into you your up your email again. Yeah. Um, we should probably look at wrapping up. Are there any? Do you have any final thoughts or things that you'd like to share? Say. Hmm. Let me think. Well, it has been fun, <laughs> and I think it's important to do to do things that are fun. Mm-hmm. You know, not not all work is fun, unfortunately, but um, it's a, it's important to try to um, to to do things that are interesting. You know that you have an interest in. Mm. I guess the um, the thing that I did learn about art um, when I did art, you know, it it was a lot of fun, and I was so passionate. I was totally passionate about it, and I don't want to ever give that up. Mm. You know, it's a different kind mm. of passion that I have now, and it's a different kind of fun. Mm. But it's really important to keep some kind of fun in in what you do yeah. because otherwise it's not worth doing. Yeah, it's not worth doing. It's just not worth doing and it's very important to have um to to have fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um I I get fulfillment out of interactions with people, out of writing something that I think you know, there's something there yeah. in it. Yeah. Um so I, I I, I try to focus on doing things that can bring some kind of um, fulfillment for me, and it, and it, it it's not doesn't happen um, all the time, of course not. But that that's like my focus, what I try to to do, and then it makes all this stress and multitasking and everything else uh, worthwhile. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for talking with me, and may you have. Find some time to go hiking soon to recover from all this amazing work that you've done for the community. Well, thank you, Geraldine. You're, you're an excellent interviewer. Thank you. You can find the summary notes, a transcript, and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.